All right, so um, just a little announcement that I want to make this week. Uh, in a couple of weeks, we are going to make a change as to what people can watch online about our services. And just basically, we'll be sending out some communication about this, but basically we are going to, for on-demand, well, let's put it this way, for live stream where you get the whole service, that's 9 a.m. only on Sundays, that you can watch and participate in the whole service online. Uh, but to after that time for on-demand, it will just be kind of a welcome and the sermon. And we're doing that until we can figure out how to create that online experience to be everything that we want it to be without spending a, a lot more money <laughs> or killing uh, our staff for doing that. So that's the basic idea behind it. Uh, so uh, if you want to see the whole service online on a weekend when you can't be here, you'll, you'll want to watch it at 9 a.m. Otherwise, you'll get uh, primarily the sermon. Um, so heads up on that. But I do want to invite you to Open your Bible to Romans chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. You can grab one of those. Romans is towards the end of the Bible. If you're using a smartphone or tablet device, uh, we're using the New International Version, the NIV, so you can follow along and you can go to that translation. One of the things that we like to say is that uh, we do this because we believe that you can really understand the Bible and you can understand your purpose in life. It doesn't have to be a mystery what the Bible means, and so every week we dig into the Bible. Uh, we're in week four of our series. If I can have that slide up, our series slide. We're in week four of our series called Gospel Resilience, and it's a series through Romans 5 through 8. It's our second series in Romans. We'll eventually work through four different series, work through the whole uh, letter of Paul to the Romans. And today we're going to look at several things. We're going to look at the big question is, or the big subject matter is, two deadly mistakes to avoid when building a resilient faith. All right, so these are, faiths, these are mistakes that we, can, uh, that we actually tend to make, and at the same time, we can avoid. So we're going to be talking about those. But we're also going to talk about how so-called cancel culture opens doors for ministry and hope. And I know a lot of people are, uh, a lot of talk about cancel culture, and I, I just want to say that it does open up opportunities for us. And we're going to be talking how understanding the power of sin opens, or misunderstanding, or even underestimating the power of sin opens us, us up to some pretty bad stuff. We do not want to underestimate the power of sin. It usually leads to some form of repression and a lot of times violence. So um, we'll talk about that along the way. So before we turn to the word, we're going to pray. Um, and this prayer of illumination is based on John chapter 16. So please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we look to your word, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, illuminate your word and guide us into your truth. Lead us into a deeper knowledge of who you are and give us faith to walk step by step with you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So this series that we're in, it's a series on uh, resilient faith, a faith, by resilient faith, we're talking about a faith that sticks it out to the end, a faith that's, that you stay in the faith all the way through life, all the way to the end of your life. And everywhere we turn these days, we hear stories. Social media helps do this. Um, but there does seem to be an uptick, uh, according to polls and stuff like that. There are more and more people leaving the faith these days and, than, um, than we've seen probably in our country uh, in a long, long time. So a lot of people are walking away from faith. They're walking away from faith because of some pretty deep doubts that they have about God, about the Bible, about all kinds of things, and sometimes because they're just so disappointed. They're disappointed with Christians. They're disappointed with their church experience. They're disappointed with their own church. There's all kinds of reasons why people are walking away from the church. But we also hear stories about people who face the same challenges as those who walk away, but instead respond in a different way. And their faith actually becomes more and more resilient. And I came across one of those stories recently. Some of you may have seen it. I don't know. Uh, I don't sit around watching YouTube videos, so I don't know who sent me this or what caused me to look at this, but it was a YouTube video about a singer who goes by the stage name Nightbird. And uh, she was on America's Got Talent. 
And, um, and she brought, because of her personal story, not, not necessarily her performance, which was good, but because of her personal story, it brought like all the, all the judges to tears. Even, even Simon, hard-hearted, mean Simon, it brought him to tears. And uh, the song that she sang is It's Okay, and it's a song that she wrote. And the interesting thing about it is that in her life and her story, it's anything but okay. Um, her story uh, kind of starts in 2017 where she was diagnosed with cancer. Uh, she was, went through a year of, of uh, chemotherapy, um, treatment. Uh, at the end of the year, she was cleared. She's, she was free of cancer. Six months later, uh, it came back with a vengeance. And um, within, um, and so uh, she's go going through treatment now, but as she was singing the song just earlier this year, a few months ago, uh, she explained that she has been given a 2% chance to live. And she's singing a song called, It's Okay. So she has a blog where she brings a lot more of her faith into it. I mean, in this video, you, see, you can see a little bit of it, but she has a blog where she brings a little bit more, and she says, when it comes to pain, uh, and this is going to kind of throw you for a second, but, but hear her out. She says, when it comes to pain, God isn't often in the business of taking it away. Instead, he adds to it. And um, she says, he is more of a giver than a taker. He doesn't take away my darkness, and this is what she means by adds to it. He adds light. He doesn't spare me of thirst. He brings water. He doesn't cure my loneliness. He comes near. So why do we believe that when we are in pain, it must mean that God is far? Why is it that we believe that? Well, she, in her blog, also talks about so many times that she pushes God away. That in her pain, she pushes God away. She becomes angry at God, and she does that, but she says, you know, somehow he keeps, keeps engaging her. He keeps drawing near to her. And so she adds this in one of her blog posts. Do we have what she adds, or am I just going to read it? She has, maybe we missed it, what God showed us when he first introduced, what God showed us when he first introduced himself that he will crawl into the dirt to be near us and he will fill our lungs with air when we don't know how to breathe. So God, the scripture tells us God is constantly drawing near to us. No matter what we're going through, God is drawing near to us. The passage that we're eventually, that's the culmination of Romans 5 through 8, is a passage that's very famous that many of you have heard before, but it's a passage where it says, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Um, but the reality that God is drawing near, there's another reality, and that is that we can kind of push him away. And we can even get to the point where we permanently keep him at arm's length, or we walk away. And when that happens, we miss out on so much. We miss out on his comfort, but we miss out on so much more. So this series asks, what, what makes for a resilient faith in the face of all the forces that would cause us to want to walk away from our faith. And those forces can be just the cultural headwinds that make Christianity just not that acceptable um, in our culture, at least not as much as it once was. It can be suffering, grief, doubts. It can be these disappointment with Christians or the church. It can, be, it can even be a misplaced confidence in ourselves. It can be persecution. It can be a spiritual, satanic attack on us. So the message of Romans 5 through 8 is that a tested faith that remains resilient is made possible by God. It's, I, I don't know that I'm emphasizing this enough in this series, but let me just say it right here. It's made possible by God. He's the power that makes it possible. But our role, and this is where maybe I'm putting more of the emphasis, is how we cooperate with him when we're tested. Because it, 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 it's, it's, it's that analogy, God is the wind, 
And if you're sailing, you've got to put up the sails. Uh, if you don't put up the sails, uh, uh, yeah, God can push the boat, but he does call us to put up, push the sails. So now in Romans 7, we're in Romans 7 now, so we're in the third of four chapters in this series. And the, the Apostle Paul explains these things that we need to avoid uh, if we're going to have a resilient faith. And the first thing that we need to avoid is uh, we, we, can't, we need to be careful not to overestimate the power of rules. We're not going to be resilient by uh, keeping a bunch of rules, by having a rules-oriented type of life. So Romans 5 through 8, the reason we're looking at resilience is because all those, those four chapters, they deal with resilience. They deal with assurance. It's constantly saying, you can have assurance that what God has promised to you is going to come about. He has, he has given you a hope, and it's sure, and nothing is going to separate you from that hope. So that's, that's what these all chapters are. But chapter 7 is a warning in the midst of all of that. It's a warning. It's a warning directed specifically to the church at Rome. Okay, so week one of this entire series, or the first series we talked about, this is a letter and all the, all the implications of this being a letter. It's inspired by God, we believe, as Christians, but it was rigi originally written as a letter. And Paul, in chapter 7, is really responding to questions that they might be raising by what he says in chapter 6, number one. And number two, he's responding because of the problems he's had wherever he's gone. And the problems he's had wherever he's gone is that he'll go and he'll preach, and sometime after he leaves, other people will come in, and they are particularly a group of people that, like Paul, are fellow Jews who believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But unlike Paul, they say that if you're going to follow Jesus the Messiah and you're a Gentile, you must now live under the covenant of the law that God gave to Israel in the Old Testament. You need to now come under that. Now, what does that mean? Uh, in a lot of cases, as Paul deals with this, that means you're going to eat kosher and you're going to follow certain days in certain ways, um, and, uh, and there's just a whole bunch of these rules. You're going to get circumcised if you're not circumcised, and most Gentile men, if not all, were not circumcised. So there was all these kinds of things that were being added to the gospel. Uh, Paul calls it another gospel, especially in Galatians where he deals with this head on. He calls it another gospel. He says it's a false gospel. You can't add to the gospel, he says. So in Romans chapter 6, he makes a statement. I said this last week. I said he's going to return to this in chapter 7, but I made, he makes this statement, uh, if I can have it up here, in Romans 6 and verse 14, he says, for sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. Now, I think for us, you know, kind of looking at that, we say, yeah, okay, that, that, that makes sense. You're not under law, but you're under grace. But what Paul is doing there is making a connection that no Jew would have made in his day. He would not have made before he was a follower of Jesus. He's making a connection between law and sin. This is, this is, this is a fine line that he's treading here. But he's saying sin will no longer be your master because you are not under the law. Do you see the connection of it, the because there? It begs the question. Does this mean that when God's people were under the law, like in the Old Testament, were they, was sin their master? And Paul's saying, yep. When they were living under the law, sin was their master. They were slaves to sin. Chapter 7 explains what he means. And he's, he's threading a very, very careful, it, this is a very, very, very careful type argument. But his point is this. He's saying, don't go back there. Don't go back to living under the covenant of the law. Don't go back there. You are now under grace, and under grace, you have a new master. All right? And it's not sin. Okay, 
that's a little bit of background. So we're looking at chapter 7. We're going to read the first six verses. It doesn't explain everything that you're going to hear here. Um, but we're going to vo- focus primarily on verse 6. He's going to give an analogy that you may think you get, but then if you really look at it carefully, you're going to go, I'm not sure I get the analogy. And even commentators say, like most analogies, it starts to fall apart a little bit. All right, so, but it gets to his main point. But here's what he says. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law. So now he's, he's speaking to those who might go this direction within that church. That the law has authority over somebody only as long as that person lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man, while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. You died to the law so that you're bound to another, and the result is that you're going to bear fruit for God. Verse 5, for when we were in the realm of flesh... The sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. In the flesh means outside of Christ, not like in skin, all right? It means outside of Christ. But now, and this is the key verse that we're going to focus on, but now by dying to what once bound us, the law, we have been released from the law so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit, the new way of the Spirit, and not by the old way of the written code. So that's what we're going to focus on. We're going to focus on that verse. We serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Okay, Paul is saying, don't go back to serving God in the old way of the written code. Now, I can't go into this into detail, but just understand this. This was a a fight that Paul had in his day. Almost none of us, if not every single one of us, will not have this fight these days. Okay, you understand? Paul is dealing with people wanting to put Gentiles under the covenant of the law. That's what he was doing. This is not a battle against legalism in the church, which is how it's often read. That's not what it is. It's a very specific historical situation, and he's dealing with a very specific historical situation. It's different than what most of us face. Remember, Romans literally was not written to us. It was written to the church in Rome, but through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it was written for us, all right? It was written for us, and it does apply to us, and it applies to us in a very, very, some very specific, very important ways. So Christians have a tendency to start with grace and then move on to kind of playing by the rules. Okay, I get saved by God's grace. I'm made right with God, not by what I do, not by keeping laws, but I get made right by God by what Jesus did for me, God's grace for me. But we have a tendency to move from that to saying, now I've got to keep the rules. And I would guess in most churches, that's the majority position. That's how most people think about it, okay? What Paul says here applies to that dangerous tendency. It is a dangerous, spiritually dangerous tendency. It's a deadly tendency. It's why it's a mistake to overestimate the power of rules. Now, I want to tell you some of the dangers in doing that. The dangers of relying on now let's play by the rules kind of life. Okay, so one of them is rules energize sin. (laughs) Rules energize sin. I'm going to read you in a second how Paul talks about this. He's talking about the law, but it can also apply to rules. Um, It doesn't mean, when I say this, I'm going to try to make this clear, it doesn't mean that rules are all bad. 
it doesn't mean that there are no rules, okay? I'm just saying a rules-oriented life is not going to be good versus a spirit-oriented life. All right, so we pick up in Romans chapter 7, and we'll read through verse 13, and you'll, I think, get a sense of what I'm talking about here. What shall we say then? Paul says, is the law sinful? Can he, when he says law, by, by the way, he's not talking about our laws. He's not even talking about rules. He's talking about the Old Testament covenant. He's talking about the Torah, the, the rules that God gave to the people of Israel. Are they sinful? He says, certainly not. And this is where I say he's, 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 he's navigating here a very, very, very careful uh, argument. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. That's one of the Ten Commandments. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. In other words, the commands are given to give us a way, to show us a way of living. But he says, we find that it actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy. And the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that, did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. The law itself is not death to you, he's saying. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. All right. The main point is this. Here's the main point. There's a lot there. We can't cover it all, but this is the main point. Sin was energized by the law. Sin was energized by the law. And it's safe to say, sin is energized by rules. Sin is energized by rules. Again, it's not to say rules are bad. There are no rules. It's not saying that. It's just saying sin grabs a hold of rules and uses them. So uh, I don't know how many of you noticed the column is gone out there when you come in. There's a column. There's, as you come in the doors, there used to be a column there. And so it's gone. It's part of what, what we're doing with all the changes that we're making because of the BLESS campaign, uh, some of the funds that we, we got for that to kind of create a more welcoming environment for people. And so uh, I didn't notice it when I first went out there, and then I noticed them taking it down because there was all this plastic, but I didn't first notice it. And somebody pointed it out. I'm like, oh, yeah, there it is. It's gone. And so we've got a, a piece of a little area rug or a, uh, one, of those, one of those gray rugs covering the ugly mess underneath, you know, where there's neither carpeting nor floor, you know, underneath. All that will be taken care of eventually. But imagine if, you know, we just got a carpet there. It's not very noticeable. But imagine if we put a sign by there that said, do not look under this rug. Okay, as soon as somebody's not looking, what do you think most of us are going to want to do? We're going to want to look under that rug. Uh, there's a little cartoon that I had in my files where this penguin is walking along on the ice and um, sees a sign that says, do not stand here. And so the penguin looks around, puts foot on, nothing. Steps right on it, smiles, and then falls through the ice. And underneath are two killer whales. And one looks at the other and says, I told you that works better than the stand here sign. <laughs> right? It's the, you know, the old, if you say do not touch the wet paint, you know, fingers everywhere um, on it. So that's how sin works. Um, the desire to break rules uh, is always a way to prove that we're in charge. It's like the first sin in the garden. What was the first sin in the garden? Eat. This, this is what motivated. The serpent says, eat this and you will be like God. 
right? Don't, don't miss that. I mean, that's, that's talking about what is at the base of sin. It's we're, you know, God says this, but I want to do this. And so eat this and you, you will be like God. So sin is a strong desire to be God that's energized when um, God's com- uh, commands or any rules try to get in the way. It's like, there's a rule. I'm not going to let that rule rule over me. Nobody's going to be my ruler. Nobody's going to be my God. I'm my own God. That's, that's what it means. Sin it gets energized. Now, this is a hard message for rule keepers. And a lot of us are. I'm just about a rule keeper. Just about. Probably more rule keeper than not. Okay, so rule keepers are like, ugh. I don't, I don't get it. I, I, uh, rules help me. And rules, I, I'm a rule keeper. And, and I'm actually, I do better with the rules. Okay, so you may be thinking that way. Uh, but here's, here's the problem. Which is the sin that is most present when you keep the rules well? It's pride. This is insidious. This is, uh, this is what's so insidious about sin. Even when we keep the rules, we're opening ourselves up to the chief of sins. The sin in the garden was a sin of pride. I want to be like God. When we keep the rules and we do it well, we are especially going to fall into the sin of pride. It's the chief of sins. It's the original sin. And look at just about any sin and you're going to find the sin beneath the sin is the sin of pride. So um, when we're good at keeping the rules and we keep the rules, we're actually turbocharging sin in our lives just to become more and more prideful. It's, I mean, this sounds like, well, what in the world? Are you? We'll get to that, okay? And it might take a couple of weeks, but we will get to that, all right? So rules energize sin. Sin is a power driving our desire to rule over our own lives. When it sees a rule, it goes into overdrive. That's what Paul is saying. It goes into overdrive. There's another problem. Rules condemn us. Rules condemn us. And they crush us oftentimes. Uh, So notice the example Paul uses in this passage of a sin. He takes a sin from the Ten Commandments that is a sin of desire, coveting. Coveting is a sin of the heart. It's, it's, um, it, it, it's almost impossible to control. So coveting specifically is a sin where you want something that is out of bounds. It's not yours to have. It belongs to somebody else. It does not belong to you. So God doesn't just say, don't take it. He says, Your very desire is a sin. Your very desire for that thing is a sin. Now, there's a difference between temptation and sin, but with coveting, I'm not not completely sure (laughs) that there's much of a difference. It's just like, like as soon as that desire for something that is out of bounds comes in, we have coveted. And it just shows how broken we are and how in need we are of forgiveness and repentance in our lives. Um, so that Paul uses the sin of coveting is, is it, it's so much harder to control. So it's one thing to say, don't do this or that. Most of us can, not most of us, r- really good rule keepers can not do this or that because they feel better. They don't feel as guilty. They feel like they're in charge of their life by following the rules. There's all kinds of reasons for that. But Paul uses one that says, no, no. When you desire something that's not yours, you see? So he's saying, this is, this is a bigger battle. You are, under, you are overestimating the power of rules if you think that you're going to stick with the faith if you will just, let's just set up some rules and keep those rules, all right? So if you want to live by rules, Paul is saying, well, keep all the rules. You really want to live that way? Keep all the rules. That includes rules of the heart. And guess what? The rules of the heart will condemn you every time. They will, they will get you every time. Rules condemn us. Rules crush us. 
But it's not just God's rules. It's any kind of rule. Just look at what happens, what's happened over the last few years in our, I mean, just in a few short years, maybe two, three years. I'm not even sure how many years in our culture. We've gone from being a culture where uh, truth and ethics and everything are just relative. It's like, you, it's true for you, it's true for me, you know, that kind of thing. Okay, that, so some of us still think we're living in that. We're not living in that world anymore. Okay, we're living in a world with a whole new set of rules, and, and, and it's no longer relative. We live in a secular, fundamentalist culture where if you break the rules, you're in trouble. You're in big, big trouble, especially if you're well-known. You know, it's like, watch out <laughs> if you're well-known and you've ever been on Twitter or Facebook or anything like that. They're going to find something on you, and you're going to be canceled and there is nothing you can do. I mean, it's that kind of fundamental. There's nothing you can do. You, you are going to, you're going to be chewed up and spit out. And there is no redemption for you. No redemption whatsoever. The only redemption is to completely capitulate. To somehow, like, your, your, your rules are right. And I am a hideous person. And I should no longer do whatever it was that I've done till now, write books or whatever. That's the only concession that you can give. Stop doing whatever you've been doing. Don't have any influence anymore and, ex and admit that you're a hideous person. It's like, it's, it's a softer version of, of Boko Haram. Boko Haram. Okay, they kidnap these girls, you know, 250 of them. They tell them, there is a way that you can repent. Okay. But by the way, Boko Haram, the actual meaning of that term means it's like women should not be educated. That's pretty much what it says. Okay, so it's all girls, all girls school. They kidnap them and they say, your redemption is this. You have to agree to our, our um, creed. Women should not be educated, number one. Number two, you have to... Um, you have to try to forget everything that you've ever learned because you're educated, you're, you're poisoned. Number three, marry one of our men and live with us. That's all you can do. That's, that's what it is. And in, our, in our culture, it's, it's not that bad, it's bad at that, but it, it seeks to destroy you unless you just capitulate completely. Unfortunately, there's some Christians and some churches who are doing their own version of that a Christian version of, of canceling people and bullying people. Um, and if you're, if you're keeping up on this stuff, it's happening all the time, and it's, it's extremely ugly. So I want to stop for a moment, and I, want, I, want us to, I don't want to overcorrect, okay? Uh, it's really easy in a situation like this in these kinds of extremes to just overcorrect. So if a person does or says truly hateful things, um, you know, intentionally, without remorse, there are forms of doing justice that require shunning them. All right, think of the, you know, the extreme stuff. You know, somebody says, no, Jews are horrible people and they deserve to be, you know, eliminated from the face of the earth. Somebody says that and means it, you know, they, you know, a form of justice is to shun that person. Okay, so let's not overcorrect. In the New Testament, churches, church members who are denying their faith by living in a way unrepentantly, repeatedly outside of the faith, they're living in a way that doesn't match, the, the, the Bible tells us don't just tolerate it. We're, we're called to not tolerate it. In fact, the Bible tells us that is not a loving thing. We're called to, it says this specifically in Galatians, you can look it up, chapter 6, we're called to gently, gently, lovingly, humbly correct them, seek to correct them, all right, before we ever shun them. But if they won't accept correction, if they say this, but they do this, and they know it's wrong, but they're going to do it anyways, the Bible literally says if you love them, you will shun them so that they might recognize that what they're doing leads to death and so that they might have life. That's the most loving response you can do. It's supposed to look very different than what's happening with our cancel cultures or even what's happening in Christian circles with the bullying and the, 
writing people off and the picking apart everything that they say and all that kind of stuff. Um, so you understand, as people in our culture are being chewed up and spit out, we have an incredible opportunity. We have an incredible opportunity to be a place of grace, a grace-based, grace-oriented body and family that actually is a place where the people who've been chewed up and spit out and canceled and all that kind of stuff. And it's, it's not just that. It's the fear of that happening. So our middle schoolers and high schoolers in our, in our country are have like big bouts with anxiety over that concern that they might say the wrong thing and there is no redemption for them because they say, thought, whatever, the wrong thing. That is an opportunity for the church. But it's only an opportunity if we're going to be grace-oriented. Rules energize sin. Rules condemn us and crush us, even our own rules. And third, rules don't cut it. Rules don't cut it. God calls us to more than keeping rules. God calls us to love. And love transcends rules. So in a recent interview, let me, let me give you an illustration of what I mean by this. A uh, recent interview with Derwin Gray. Uh, Derwin Gray is a pastor, an author, uh, used to be an NFL player. Um, he talks about in this interview that performance, uh, how, how driven he was by performance and to perform. And he said, uh, coming, uh, he said a couple of things that kind of played into that was uh, abandonment issues. His dad abandoned them when he was young. Another factor was he was sexually abused as a kid. And so he said he found in football a performance-based culture that, you know, it's how fast you run, how high you can jump, how well you can do the skills. And he had the abilities to do those things to, to the point of making it all the way to the, to the NFL. And, and so he said, but it didn't cut it. When my whole life is driven by performance, it didn't cut it when I got married and I was called to love my wife. To love my wife. So loving is not like jumping high, performing skills, preaching a good sermon, closing a deal, completing a project at work. Love is a, a different animal. Love transcends performance. It's action. Love is going to result in action, but it has to spring from the heart. Imagine buying a gift for your girlfriend, boyfriend, spouse, and you bring that gift to them. And you say, I know you really wanted this, and I bought it for you because I'm supposed to. Okay, it's not that hard to understand that, is it? It's hard to define, but you can understand what a rule-based type of living is versus something that is love and transcends the rules. Love will give the same gift, but to see the joy on the other person, right? Instead of, I'm supposed to do this. I read a book that says husbands or wives, should, we, should, we should get gifts. So I got this. I, I'm doing what the book said. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is, this is a, a pro, pro, prologue to the whole giving of the law in the Old Testament. Hear, O Israel... The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commands that I give you today are to be in your hearts. At, before giving all the rules, he said, this has to be a heart thing. If it's not a heart thing, it's, it's, it's got to be motivated by love. So Paul in Romans 7 is very concerned that in our attempt to live out the Christian life, to live a resilient Christian life, we're going to move from going under grace to moving to rules and laws and, and it, even keeping our own rules and setting up all kinds of rules and performing, 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 doing the things that Christianity has called us to do. So we're going to perform for God. And he's saying, you understand, if you try to live by the rules, sin is actually going to be energized in your life. Don't overestimate the power of rules. Again, it doesn't mean that there's not rules. Paul is careful to distinguish between the idea of, of going back to the law or having some rules in, in life. Rules can be a window into God's, to God's vision for us, for our world, his rules, his commands, a vision of what life can be. 
a vision of who we are, uh, a reality check for what we are like, guardrails that help us. Um, I've listed in this sermon application guide one of the questions on the very back, uh, a bunch of passages in Romans where Paul says positive things about the law. One of them is in chapter 13 uh, where he says this, he says, let no one remain, no, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. That's still important to fulfill the law. Love does not harm, does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So it's not just like no rules, do whatever you want, you know, that kind of thing. All right. Second, this point's a lot shorter, so don't worry. Don't underestimate the power of sin. Don't overestimate the power of rules. Don't underestimate the power of sin. When the Bible speaks about sin, it doesn't just speak of individual sins. You've heard me say this before. It speaks also of sin as a power, singular sin. And so in these verses that I've already read, it says sin seizing the opportunity. You hear that? That the, the, the Activity of sin, the power of sin, it seizes the opportunity afforded by the commandment, producing, he says, in me every kind of coveting. It's like, it's like sin has that kind of power. In verse 11, he said, for sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me. It's the power to deceive me. And through the commandment, put me to death because it condemned me. All right? So, Look at what else he says about the power of sin. Uh, verses 14 through, through the end of the chapter, where it says this, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, who, uh, who do it. But it is sin living in me, for I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. That's that word flesh again, by the way. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out, for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do... It is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Somehow he says all that without ultimately uh, saying that I have an excuse, all right, because there is no excuse. Verse 21, so I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What, I, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from the body, this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, we'll, we'll touch that last section there in just, in just a moment. But... This passage is a notoriously difficult passage. What is he talking about here? I'm going to give you three interpretations. They're in your outlines. Um, I think I have it up here. Maybe I don't. It is in your outlines. So there's three. I think it's in your outlines. There are three ways that this passage has been understood. Oh, yeah. This describes Paul's experience before he was a Christian. Paul is putting himself back before he was a Christian. He's saying this is what it was like under the law. All right, so... That's one of the major interpretations. The second major interpretation of what Paul is talking about is this describes Paul's experience as a Christian. Now, by the way, this is the one we're all going to be drawn to because this, this does describe all of our experience, right? Uh, but that doesn't mean that's what Paul is talking about. Uh, I am not, to tell you the truth, I'm not going to tell you which one I think it is uh, because I don't have time to explain it. And I am going to say this. I'm more concerned, I think, all three of these, you're not going to go wrong if you go with one of these. So I'm not like, you better get this right. But you better get your reasoning right. So if you look at this one because you like it and it explains your situation and it makes you feel better, you better look again and see, is that just me trying to make it say something 
I want it to say. Because there is a, a, a third position, too, that this describes Israel's struggle under the law, and that is perfectly capable of doing that. There were the way that people talked in that day. We've got writings that show this. They can go into the first person to take a position of a whole group of people. All right, so those are the three interpretations, and uh, if you want to go into that, you'll have to do that. We say here, you know, reading, understanding the Bible and your purpose in life doesn't have to be a mystery. It doesn't mean there isn't any mystery. <laughs> it's just saying you can understand it, but you're not going to understand everything. All right, so there is mystery involved in our faith. Um, don't miss the emphasis, though, on the power of sin. Don't underestimate its power. Now, I'm just going to do kind of in a closing here, um, a quick lightning round on what happens when we underestimate the power of sin, all right? So, let's, uh, let's start. Here's the first one. When we underestimate the power of sin, we are tempted to buy into utopian visions of the world free from racism, a utopian vision. We can have a world free from poverty, free from war, which, spoiler alert, always involve repression and violence. <laughs> because sin is so powerful that that world is not going to happen until Christ comes. It doesn't mean that we don't work for it. We do work for it. But utopian visions say, we're going to have it. Now, how are we going to have it? We're going to put you in jail <laughs> if, if, you, if you don't line up with it. All right. I, you know, my answers just come, well, my answers, my mom comes from a country that is that way. All right. It's like, we are going to be equal. And if you don't, if you don't, you know, we're going to take everything away from you and put you in prison. You know, it's that kind of a thing. All right? So don't underestimate the power of sin. When we underestimate the power of sin, number two, we often underestimate the power and reality and continuing impact of racism within ourselves and others and in our world. We've, we talked about justice a few weeks ago, and it's crazy that, that Christians are somewhat known in our culture for denying that racism is there when in reality, we should be the first ones to go, yeah, racism and everything else. We're, we're like, sin is powerful in us. We, we ought to like, be the first ones to go, yes, we need repentance. You know, we're broken. And why we like, go like this is crazy. It's just crazy when, it get, when our theology tells us sin is powerful. It's going to sneak in in so many different ways. It's going to run your life in so many different ways. Why would we think that our culture would be free from that. I, I don't know. I don't, I don't understand. But that's what happens when we underestimate the power of sin. Number three, when we underestimate the power of sin, we minimize our sins. We blame others for our sins. We ignore our sins, and we deny our sins at all costs, which means we can't repent. That's tragic. You can't repent. If you can't repent, you can't receive Christ. You're lost. You're outside. You're, you've put yourself outside. You are living in hell, and that's where you're going to stay. You have separated yourself from God, and you have not stepped towards him by repenting. That's what happens when we minimize our sins. When we underestimate the power of sin, we pursue freedom from constraints, and we end up enslaved to sin. Like, I can, I can fool around with this. I can fool around with that. And what we become is we become slaves to whatever that is. When we underestimate the power of sin, I think this is the last one, we underestimate the need for God's grace and for the gospel. In other words, when we underestimate the power of sin, Jesus coming to die for us, well, that's a really nice thing for him to do. <laughs> Don't know why he'd have to die, kind of like, you know, it's the difference between someone standing up in a boat, I've used this illustration before, and yelling, I love you, therefore I'm going to drown myself, <laughs> versus drowning while saving someone who has fallen off the boat and doesn't know how to swim. See the difference? If you don't, if you underestimate the power of sin, you don't need the gospel. You don't need what Jesus did on our behalf and for our world. So this passage is about what not to do for building a resilient faith. Don't overestimate the power of rules. Don't underestimate the power of sin, right? 
and put it together and you get this. Don't try to fight sin by becoming a rule keeper. There's a better way. The better way is going to be the next sermon in Romans um, because it's what he turns to. But I want, to, I want to give you just a little quick preview of it. So, um, so beginning in verse 25 again. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, my flesh, a slave to the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We've broken the law, but we're not condemned. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled, fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So let's begin our response right now because... This is, what, this is what this is all about. This is what this is all about. Jesus died on our behalf. He did what we could not do. The reason he could die on our behalf is because he took on human flesh without ceasing to be God. The reason we could die on our behalf is because he kept the law that we did not keep. Sin never ruled over him. And when he went to his death, he said this, before he went to his death, he said this, speaking of his death, this is my body broken for you. Let's eat together. And he took the cup. It was the cup of Passover. And he said, this is my blood shed for you. Let's drink together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you have done for us. Um, we thank you that even though we are powerless uh, in so many ways before sin, you came to become one of us. You kept the law in our place. You did what was right, and then you paid the penalty for our, our wrongs. Help us to move forward, not, not living in fear of sin, but living in the grace that you've given us and out of just a heart of gratitude and love, living in that grace, may we keep your rules that show us the way, that give us life. We thank you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.